voting is not only the lifeblood of our democracy, it also is a critical act of faith. It's a sacred act. That's how Congressman John Lewis, who we know passed away this last year, described it. Every voter is made in the image of God, Imago Dei. When you try to restrict or intimidate someone from voting, you are literally assaulting that image. And you are also assaulting our democracy. Welcome to Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM and streaming at WERA.FM. This is Ed Malik, and I'll be your host for the program tonight. It seems like the term social justice has become a four-letter word for some people. This is rather odd, especially among Christians. Whether it's God's Old Testament call for a mighty flood of justice or Jesus challenging us to serve the least of these, the Bible is continually promoting justice. Tonight, we're joined by Adam Taylor, the president of Sojourners, an organization promoting faith and action for social justice for 50 years. Adam has an interesting career promoting justice and other causes while working at places like the World Bank, World Vision, and the White House. He's the author of two books, including a soon-to-be-released work called A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Adam joins us to talk about the biblical call to promote justice and what that looks like. Adam, welcome to Grace in 30. It's great to be with you, Ed. So why do you think many people, and in particular, some conservatives and evangelicals, see social justice in a negative light? It's a great question. I think part of it is that many Americans, and in particular American evangelicals, but this is true of other American Christians, have often overly privatized the gospel. And I think that's in part because we have such a ethos and ethic of individualism in this country, and that is seeped into how we understand theology. And so the dangers of that is that we kind of see through a lens, we see faith through a lens that is very personal and privatized. And and while clearly I believe in the importance of a personal, transforming, redemptive relationship with Christ, that relationship is meant to then enlist us in God's kingdom building purposes in the world. And so that sometimes kind of creates some blinders and barriers for a lot of Christians to be able to understand how so often getting to the root causes of injustice in the world requires understanding how systems and structures and attitudes so often perpetuate and inflict harm. And so you know, go give you a great example that's a fairly recent one. There's been obviously a lot of focus and necessary attention on the crisis in policing, particularly racialized policing in this country, particularly after the horrific murder of George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and others. And even after all of what we experienced and saw over the course of this last summer, what sparked what many have been describing as a racial awakening or racial reckoning, based on some polling by a polling firm and company called PRI, they found that the majority of white evangelicals didn't change their perspective at all as a result of everything we saw and still see policing as just, you know, know, some of these cases of, of police violence only as isolated cases and not as a larger systemic problem. And so that's just one example that I could point of many where I feel like there's been this just real challenge to get 
many Christians, certainly not all, to understand just how systemic injustice is. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, one of my favorite scriptures is the human heart is the most deceitful of all things. We have just this infinite capacity for self-deception. And I, I feel like some of this is, is, is selfishness that we don't see. Um, we, we think we're being really good in serving the community. And, and in actuality, we're not being so good. There's sort of a four-chapter gospel. It's, there's a creation, there's a fall, there's redemption, and then there is um, a call to contribute to flourishing. And I think we're kind of missing that. I mean, w- would you agree with that, that we're, we are too focused on the personal and not so much on the community? Yeah, I would. And I think that we really can't understand our faith without understanding a deep call and commitment to the community, to a communal understanding of our faith. And, you know, that's certainly true of the kind of community we build in a particular congregation or church, but it's those, those commitments extend far beyond that, that, you know, as the apostle Paul described it, the church as Christ's body is, you know, a, a functioning body where if one part suffers, all parts suffer with it. And when one part is honored, all parts are honored with it. And so I think we've got to see that that metaphor does apply to the church, but also applies to the broader society in which we live and in an even larger sense, our nation and our world. I think there's also this kind of challenge of, you know, how any term can easily be politicized and hijacked. And I think, as you kind of said at the beginning of the program, that's happened to social justice. My definition of social justice from what I think is a really biblical point of view is combining the two words that show up most often in Hebrew in the Old Testament that really, I think, are at the heart of what justice requires. So the word tzedek is literally translated as righteousness, but it's not the kind of righteousness that's like a personal piety. And that word shows up you know, hundreds and hundreds of times all across the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, kind of that word tzedek or tzedek really means how things ought to be, like how we ought to be treating each other and how the world ought to look. Then there's another word called mishpat, which is a, a, a Hebrew word that is really about making just decisions. And we kind of think about a traditional justice system or a judge making just decisions. And so when you combine tzedek with mishpat, you really have this understanding that justice at its core is about restoring right relationship between people where it's broken and maintaining right relationship between ourselves and God, ourselves and our neighbor, ourselves and the other, even ourselves and our enemies and ourselves and all creation. And so it, it kind of broadens and deepens it. And, you know, I think it's a way to create a different kind of conversation about what social justice means and what it looks like. Do you also believe that sort of political tribalism is causing an issue here? Uh, I mean, the Bible, I've heard people say something like 40% of the Bible is, is the scriptures are related to justice. And is it sort of the pairing of the word social with justice has become affiliated with, you know, liberal causes or blue causes or something? I mean, is, is it a problem of semantics or is it something far more deep than that? I think it's partly that. I think certainly the Bible has mis- been misused and abused throughout history and just kind of putting it in our own context throughout U.S. history is we know the Bible was abused and, and misused to justify slavery. And literally, you know, during the height of slavery in the United States, many slaveholders created an alter- alternative Bible. They named it the slave Bible, where they literally cut out those verses that deal with 
God's commitment to justice and freeing the most oppressed and caring for the most vulnerable. And I think, you know, while we don't have that level of extreme where, you know, churches are literally cutting out those verses, I feel like we de facto have that in some churches where many of those verses just aren't preached. I mean, I, I don't want to make an over, overly general comment here, but I think you know, I've heard lots of stories of how many of the scriptures that you know, really are hard to ignore in terms of God's commitment to justice just don't get pro- preached and taught in some churches. Um, and then when we're thinking about you know, some of the complex policy issues that we're facing as a nation, I'll just take one in relation to our broken immigration system. Oftentimes, those scriptures that describe God's concern for the vulnerable and the stranger in our midst, that we have, there's an injunction to welcome the stranger, just don't really get taught or get emphasized. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that you can easily apply that to a particular policy prescription, but I think we have to start with some core principles, shared principles. Um, And then from there, we can then try to have civil robust conversation about what does it mean to then apply that a principle to very tough policy choices. When we spoke on the phone, I asked you, what are some of the things that are really on your heart these days? And and you mentioned competing understandings of our history and how we got here. And frankly, as you're talking right now, we have competing understandings for what the scriptures say. And, and I, I, you know, I keep thinking, I keep trying in my own faith to say, you know, well, what's, what's, unassailable, you know, the things that we truly do know and agree on across the body of Christ. Do you see this, this sort of disagreement on the interpretation of the scriptures and, and, and our history and things like this as being one of the most, or maybe even the most challenging thing that the Christian church in America faces right now? I think it is. And I also think it's kind of tied to that, the ways in which so often our faith has been overly politicized where often instead of our faith shaping and informing our politics, our politics is informing and shaping our faith. We all approach scripture with foggy glasses on. You know, we, we see scripture through our own particular lens and our own particular experiences. And the danger in that is that we can sometimes then kind of miss the meaning of what's happening and, you know, interpret in ways that can really um, miss the mark. And so I think part of what we need is just a a much better set of tools, if you will, lenses through which we understand scripture. And part of that is really being diligent about putting scripture in its appropriate and necessary political, economic, social, cultural context. My dean of my seminary had had a quote that I love to share where he said, anytime you take a text out of its context, it means you're being conned. And then unfortunately, you know, you've got many, certainly not all, uh, pastors and and clergy in the country that aren't always being as disciplined about explaining what the particular context was in which, you know, a particular thing was said by Jesus or, or a particular story happened in the Old Testament, because we can't really fully understand the meaning unless we understand that full context. You know, we often easily forget or at least we don't emphasize enough that Jesus was a poor, probably brown Palestinian Jew who was living in the midst of severe Roman oppression and occupation. And, you know, so if you understand that context, 
then it's, you have a kind of a different understanding of when Jesus goes into the temple and he overturns the tables of the money changers out of anger, out of righteous indignation, because not, not just because they're defiling the temple, but because he actually sees the way in which people in the temple are being exploited by priests and by, by others in the temple itself. And so it has this, you know, kind of strong social justice moment that often gets completely ignored if you don't understand the, the political, economic, and social context in which it happened. So maybe this is a good time to talk about what Sojourners does and, and how do you do this? I mean, why, why are you interpreting these things correctly? How do, you, how do you keep yourself in line? And what are the things you're doing to, in the community at, at large to try to, to try to change things? I mean, I have guests on from One America Movement and from Braver Angels and from War in Common and whole, all sorts of organizations. And, and I always ask them, you know, give us some comfort, speak comforts to me. I feel like Charles Dickens, you know, what, what are you doing yeah. to make a difference, to change things out there? And, and do you sometimes feel like you're almost spitting into the uh, hurricane because things are so challenging and difficult. Please tell us some of the things you're doing to try to make a difference. Desmond Tutu once said that as Christians, we're called to be prisoners of hope. And I certainly feel that myself. Some days I'm more hopeful than others. But I, I do believe in part because of my reading of history and, and seeing and, and learning about the ways in which faith was such an animating force in inspiring and driving the civil rights movement, which literally helped to transform our country. I mean, it really created kind of a, a third founding, if you will, of the country after the 1964 Civil Rights Act, Act, Act was passed and the 1965 Voting Rights Act was passed. And that happened because of the sacrifice and a dedication of many people, but you know, the, the kind of anchor of that movement was the black church in particular. Lots of other allies came on board as well but the black church and a kind of theology that was committed to justice and understood that ultimately God hears the cries of the oppressed and ultimately stands on the side of justice really was this driving force that inspired so many to make such incredible sacrifices. And so, you know, I, I share that you know, brief example as a way to say, I really do feel that there's a need for a deep spirituality and a deep kind of um, you know, I often describe it as kind of a, a, a vibranium, if you will, spiritual vibranium, because my favorite movies is Black Panther, and I have a seven or now eight and 10-year-old sons, uh, so we're big Marvel fans. But it, it is this kind of force that can enable us to do things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise and gives us this resilient hope to overcome really challenging situations. So that, that's just kind of in terms of what can sustain us. The other thing that I would emphasize is that, yes, our country right now is severely polarized. I don't think we've been this divided since the 1960s, or maybe even since the Civil War. The hope I have is that the church at its best can be this, this vehicle that can help create space that bring people together across very different political perspectives. And it can be a space and a balm, if you will, that enables us to kind of come together and root ourselves in some shared core principles and core values. And again, I'm not saying that we always agree on what those should be, but I do think there's actually a lot more common ground than we realize. And, you know, I think where I've seen churches do this well, it's where, you know, the, a pastor doesn't try to convert his congregation or her congregation 
toward the same way that she or he votes or the same kind of politics that they have, but really tries to get them to think more critically and theologically about the very you know, challenges that we face as a country and as a society, and is able to kind of build this shared sense of we're in this together, that we don't have to defeat our enemy. We actually are called to love our enemy, that we, we can ground ourselves in a shared commitment to protect the weakest and most marginalized in our midst. And I just think it's, it's really impossible for any serious Bible studying Christian to not see that God has this particular concern for the weak and vulnerable. And let's start there. And I think if we you know, start from that, that vantage point, that starting point, it opens up all kinds of possibilities. It's funny, while you were talking, saying that, I actually opened up the book of Revelation, and I was reading about the church, the letter to the church at Laodicea, and it says, I'm rich, I have everything, I don't need a thing, and you don't realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. That's all of us. I mean, I, I experienced this 13 years ago in my marriage. I was an ogre in my house, and I, I was so self-righteous and judgmental, it was ridiculous. And for some reason, thank God, I woke up, but I see this all around me, and I'm trying to say, hey, you know, everyone, we need to all be constantly opening our eyes and examining ourselves so that then we become more empathetic, more graceful, more willing to reach out and help these other people, especially our enemies. I mean, we're commanded to love, love the despised Samaritan and love our enemies. What's the one thing you're most proud of that Sojourners has done that has promoted this sort of people examining themselves and becoming more and more empathetic to the least of these in society? Really good question. I think let me describe one thing that we're, we're doing right now. So, I mean, it's a little bit too early to know how successful it's going to be, although I'm pretty hopeful about it. But for the last year, we've been working on a curriculum that's really designed for pastors and church leaders that find themselves in this really tough spot where they want to do more to try to promote healing and reconciliation and justice, including within their own church. But they recognize that the stakes are high and that they can end up further dividing their congregation. And so for some, that has meant they become or try to stay pretty apolitical. The challenge with that is following Christ has profound social, political, and economic implications. I mean, if we really believe that God is Lord over all of our lives, that's got to include those dimensions of our lives as well. And then so often, this is kind of borrowing or paraphrasing from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when we are silent, it is actually a kind of endorsement of the status quo. And certainly when I look around us, I think we've got... You know, some, the status quo is not acceptable. And so what we've done is we've, we've created a curriculum that is designed to equip pastors on how they can effectively lead in a very divided context. And whether that's because the congregation has deep ideological divisions, political divisions, racial divisions, et cetera. And it's kind of an eight part series that takes their church, whether it's in small groups or in some cases could be a whole church doing it together through this you know, very deliberate curriculum that is rooted in scripture that would really open up new ways of talking about social and political issues and would enable, you know, to create some braver space where people could engage in, in more courageous dialogue. And so I'm pretty excited about it. We've gotten some great feedback from a lot of different partners and denominational leaders. Um, we're going to be rolling this out in the, the summer and into the fall. And so certainly that's kind of one example that I point to. The other one is a, a campaign that we've been doing with the National African American Clergy Network and the Skinner Leadership Institute. It's called Turnout Sunday, Lawyers and Callers. Mm 
And it's our way of responding to some of the alarming increases in bills that have been proposed in many parts of the country that are further restricting the right to vote, that you know, are um, suppressing the votes of certain communities, particularly the black community. And you know, for us, voting is not only the lifeblood of our democracy, it also is a critical act of faith. It's a sacred act. That's how Congressman John Lewis, who we know passed away this last year, described it. And so we developed a campaign that mobilized over 3,000 clergy and pastors in nine states in the 2020 election, all nonpartisan. This is not about getting you know, a certain party elected or a certain candidate elected. It's really about believing that every voter is made in the image of God, Imago Dei, and that when you try to restrict or intimidate someone from voting, you are literally assaulting that image. And you're also assaulting our democracy. And so we had a lot of success in mobilizing black pastors. We got white allies involved. We worked with some rabbis as well. So it was interfaith in some states. And we were able to not only advocate with senior election officials and secretaries of state to try to hold them accountable for a free, fair and safe election. But we were also able to deploy what we call poll chaplains at thousands of polling sites in these nine states to you know, literally have clergy spend the day at a polling site to welcome people, to watch what's going on. And we had a hotline through the lawyers committee where they were able to call in if any, any voters had any challenges or troubles. And so for me, you know, that is, the, that is like faith in action. That is the, the best of our faith being put in action to protect the Imago Dei and to also safeguard our democracy. I was curious. I had a concept, an idea that came to me recently about what I call a grace lobbyist, someone whose whose job would be to go to Capitol Hill and into Congress and lobby for grace, not lobby for some cause that has a financial benefit or a power benefit for somebody, but simply be there and, and just pressing people to extend grace, to, to love their enemies, to do good to those who hate them, that sort of thing. Does that sound crazy? And, and if it's something that's intriguing to you, is that sort of a, a thing that a, a group like Sojourners could do? I'm intrigued by it. I mean, I think there's, there's no question that there's a desperate need for grace within our Congress right now. And, and, and so there's a lot of different forces that are anti-grace, if you will. I mean, there's so many different ways in which what I, call, what I often describe as the politics of division, which is so, much, so often fueled by fear and even hatred, or is fueled by a zero-sum understanding of politics in the world or by an us versus them mentality, is so powerful right now. And, and unfortunately, some of the incentives in our political system are actually rewarding that kind of politics, particularly the degree to which you know, over 80% of our congressional seats are really decided in the primary, not in the general election. And so it really rewards the most kind of strident Republican or Democratic candidate in a safe seat to be able to win. And so I think, you know, some of what we have to do is, you know, try to push for changes that would reward the gray side of the equation rather than the kind of division side of the equation. But I do think that there needs to be more efforts to, you know, celebrate courageous examples where members of Congress do show and extend grace and to create more opportunities for them to build those kind of relationships. Um, I do spend 
a lot of time in Congress doing advocacy and have met with lots of different members and lots of different issues. And one of the things that I often do um, is, is offer to pray for a member. Um, and obviously, you know, if they feel uncomfortable with that, that's perfectly fine. But in almost every case, the members really, really welcome those prayers. And it opens up a different kind of space in that, in that meeting context. Um, and I would love to see more members offer to pray for each other. I know that there are members that meet in kind of a prayer breakfast. And there's, there's obviously the national prayer breakfast, which is the larger version of that. But, you know, fortunately there are members that have been meeting for years in the context of Bible study and, and prayer. But my sense is that's, you know, certainly a minority and not the majority. And so those are just a couple of, of ideas, but I like, and, and certainly would support this idea of grace and I think it's desperately needed in Congress. What's the most important thing that's on your heart these days? That's the sort of the thing that, man, when I talk to people, I want to make sure I share this. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking a lot, probably because I just wrote a book about it, about what kind of moral vision could unite our country across the many hurts and divides that exist. And I'm not naive. I know those, those hurts and divides are real and they're very significant, but, but I do believe that this vision of the beloved community, which for me, if I just had to paraphrase it, is about creating a society where neither punishment or privilege is tied to race or skin color or gender or sexual orientation. And it's building a, a society where everyone is seen, everyone is valued and everyone can thrive. And that vision animated the civil rights movement, which I talked about earlier, I think it can be reimagined and recast for our current moment in a way that could really be the anecdote to the kind of toxic polarization we see in our politics. And it's one that I think could transcend some of the hyper-partisanship that we also see. So I'm anxious to share more about that when the book comes out in September. But I do think that kind of shared moral vision is absolutely crucial right now. And again, what's the title of the book? It is A More Perfect Union, A New Vision for Building the Beloved Community. Super. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. If listeners would like to find out more about Sojourners, check them out on the web at sojo.net. That's S-O-J-O.net. A recording of this program can be found at thegraceand30.com and WERA.FM websites, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Mixcloud. The show will also re-air on this station this coming Sunday at 8.30 a.m. This is Ed and Adam signing off from Grace and 30 on WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. Have a great night and be sure to tune into Grace.